Good morning, everybody. Let there be light. How are you all doing today? Good. Hey, how about those Washington Capitals? Anyone? A couple of y'all? All right, good, good, good. That's a hockey team for those of you who don't know what ice hockey is. All right. Uh, well, hey, if, you have, if I haven't met you yet, you're new here, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, this is the second week that we are continuing our series, uh, Journey with Jesus, as we're uh, journeying through the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 1. We're going to be looking at Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Coming of the King. The Coming of the King. And the reason we've entitled this, as you guys are turning to your Bibles, or turning them on, whichever you prefer, uh, we've entitled this series, Journey with Jesus. And so we're not just looking at the life of Christ in Mark's gospel, but also the journey that this king calls his followers to join him on. And so with that said, the verses will be up on the screen. The way this works here at the transit is we like to read scripture together. And so guys, you're going to help me read these verses. So let's go, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're here this morning because of you. Uh, we're here uh, uh, today to sing your praises, to bring you honor uh, because you are good. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have lavished upon us. So thank you, God. Spirit, thank you that you're here with us. And we just pray, Spirit of the living God, that you would, you would make your word come to life and you would stir our hearts and our affections for you, Jesus. And do what only you can do. Would you change our minds? Would you transform us here this morning? And may you increase and may I decrease up here. We pray this, Jesus, in your beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, well, hey, if you were here last week, we looked at uh, Mark 1. Uh, verses 1 through 8. Jeff unpacked that. And uh, actually, the beginning of Mark's gospel doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with this guy, John the Baptist. And if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know that he was one of the first hipsters that we encounter in ancient literature. Uh, my man, he had a wardrobe of like camel hair. All right, he wore like camel hair clothes. He had a, a locust and honey-based diet, gluten-free, ate like locust and honey. And he had a low-carbon footprint. He was a minimalist. He lived in the wilderness. Uh, and this John the, the, uh, the, the Baptist, was uh, his ministry was a fulfillment of the prophecies we have in Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3.1, which Mark uh, repeats in, verses, in Mark 1, verses 2 through, two through 3, which is up there on the screen. And this is, uh, this, these are these two passages. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the king. Make his paths straight. And so what this uh, 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 prophet, if you will, uh, John the Baptist was doing is he uh, was preaching this, this ministry, this, this message, this proclamation of this gospel that, hey, there's this king coming. 
And y'all need to get ready for this king coming. I love the illustration that Jeff uh, unpacked last week when Jeff was unpacking this text of uh, what do y'all do when you have like guests of honor coming to your house? Man, you prepare the way for that person to come to your house. Or you get the vacuum out, you get, you know, the Windex out, and you're doing some deep cleaning, right? And uh, in the same way, John the Baptist is saying, hey, there's a king coming who's about to change everything. This king's coming, he's going to change literally the entire course of human history. And so what we see there is that there's a revival that took place. Uh, uh, scholars, uh, some New Testament scholars say that upwards to, upwards to 300,000 people were impacted by John the Baptist, uh, his ministry, getting baptized and preparing their hearts for this coming king. The whole Judean countryside, all of Jerusalem is what it says in Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. And so what we see here before we arrive at our text in verse 9 is that there is this huge anticipation taking place. Hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people going to this crazy guy in the wilderness getting baptized and, 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 and they've waited a lifetime for this Messiah to come. See, see, these Jewish believers, they knew the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah that there was going to come this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one of God who is going to rule. He's going to be in the Davidic line. He's going to come and rule God's people, be a good king and a gracious king and free them from uh, their oppressors. This king was coming, so there's this huge anticipation building. And people might be asking, okay, when's it going to be? It's going to be today? Tomorrow? Who? Who is this king going to be? Where is he going to come from? And when he arrives on the scene, what is he going to do? What is this king going to say? And so that's where we're at. That's the scene we're at before we get into Mark 1, 9 through 13. And so there's two points of my talk this morning as we see in this text today. One, we see the inauguration of this king. He begins, he enters into his public ministry. And secondly, we see the temptation of this king. He enters into the battle, our battle. So Mark 1, 9. In those days, verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's stop right there. Boom, king arrives on the scene. In those days, Jesus in those days, the Christ. In those days, the Son of God. Mark 1, 1. In those days, the most influential person to ever walk the face of the earth came from Nazareth of Galilee. One of the first details that Mark gives us about this Jesus is he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Because we're, we live in Northern Virginia and you know, the 21st century, we have no idea what this means. But, but here's the deal. This is what we need to know about Nazareth. Is that Nazareth was an economically poor town that literally nobody knew about or nobody really cared about. And if they did know about Nazareth, they knew that it was in the region of Galilee. Now listen, the region of Galilee was despised by the religious elite of the day because of its influx of uh, Gentiles. Influx of people not like them. Influx of people who didn't worship their God. These, these Gentiles were there in the, in the region of Galilee. And it was super far from Jerusalem. And the beautiful picture that we have here, church, is our king who changed the world, our savior. He, in God's providence, called his hometown Nazareth of Galilee. And this is the reputation we see that Nazareth had in John 1, 45 through 46. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets foretold, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And they look at Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? And uh, I love Philip's response. He says, come and see. Come and see. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what evangelism looks like? 
you know, he didn't unpack the Romans road, didn't exist at that, at that time in history. But anyways, he didn't, you know, where he just said, hey, just come and see. Come and see. It was, a, it was an invite to uh, get into the presence of this guy, this king from Nazareth. And so this is one of the first things we learned is that this king, listen, chose his hometown to be called Nazareth of Galilee, not Jerusalem. That's huge. That's huge. See, see this king didn't uh, choose his hometown to be Jerusalem. And he didn't have a, a, a parade of religious leaders, those who were esteemed, those who were honored, and those who had power back in that day 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. He didn't, he didn't march and have a, a parade uh, of people to go to John the Baptist and, and say, hey, make Israel great again. That was not his message. He didn't come from, from Jerusalem. He didn't align himself with the religious elite of the day. He aligned himself with the marginalized. He aligned himself with the poor, the despised of that day. The one place that, that self-righteous religious people of the day would despise someone to come from, that's, that's where he's like, that's my hometown, Nazareth. And so uh, it goes without saying, but uh, American evangelicals, if Christ were to walk on the scene today and we heard that he's from a certain region or maybe he, he, he came from a certain area that, that maybe doesn't, is a little bit different than ours, how would we respond? What would our response look like? And I read Matthew 25 recently, and it's the final judgment. And this is the words of Christ. I'm not going to, I don't want to take too long here, but do yourself a favor. Read Matthew 25 and look at the final judgment and what Christ is going to call his church to. So this is what the church is going to do. You, I, I was, uh, you, you helped, you welcomed the stranger. You fed the poor. You gave water to the thirsty, and you did this unto me. That's what we're going to be called to and so I just want to challenge us with that, that our Savior, our King, didn't come from Jerusalem. He came from Nazareth. That's who he called his homies and his hometowns from Nazareth. That's no small thing. Continuing, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee in humility. Came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Let's stop there. So uh, John's gospel is action-packed. If you've read the other gospels, there's not as much detail. There's not as much teaching here. Mark is uh, uh, to the point. And he jumps from one scene to the next. His favorite word is immediately. So you'll see that a lot. It's kind of a, it moves quickly. And so what we see here is that Jesus Christ came and was actually baptized by John in the Jordan. And the question we need to ask is, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? Because we learn in John's gospel that when Jesus approaches John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb has to be spotless, without blemish. See, John's, John's uh, message and, and, and John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, turning from your sins, turning from worshiping false kings, and turning and getting your heart ready to worship the true king, the coming king. Why in the world would Jesus need to get baptized? And I would say, uh, one, I think two things. Identification with humanity, and two, inauguration of his public ministry. And the first point is identification. At his baptism, Jesus Christ, the coming king, identifies himself with a sinful humanity and aligning himself with those he came to save. And so a couple years back, I was on a short-term missions trip. Uh, we went on a couple times. Our church had this partnership with Food for the Hungry where uh, basically a church will kind of um, 
go to the same neck of the woods uh, overseas for, for years and try to build a relationship and, uh, and a partnership with a community overseas. And so I was, uh, we were in this small town in the Dominican Republic called Olivero. It's like five hours inland from the capital, uh, a couple miles from the, the, the border of Haiti. And uh, uh, the first time we went, this is actually probably like uh, before I met my wife, so probably about eight years ago, before uh, the second time we went, but the first time we went, here's the deal, there was no running water in that neighborhood. And so you're there, you're, 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 it's, it's like 120 degrees out there, uh, there's no running water, no AC, and so you're, you're pretty, pretty nasty. And the way that we uh, would uh, get clean is you'd have to go down to the river. You bathe where everyone else would bathe. You get water where everyone else would get water, in a way. And so literally all of us on the trip, would, we hopped in the back of the, the truck, drove about five miles uh, to the river, went down this dirt road, and uh, the first time there, I was like, okay, I mean, I got my loofah, I got my water shoes, I got my Old Spice, let's go get clean. And uh, I look, and uh, there's a huge crowd now on the bridge. Everyone got word that, hey, a bunch of white people are going to come bathe in their, uh, in their river. And, uh, and I was like, oh, man, this is a spectacle. Okay. And I look, and the river that, uh, it's not really a river, it's more of like a, a creek with some water in it. And there's one spot you can get fully submerged, but you kind of sit there and, you know, like lap the water on you. And I look, and upstream, a bunch of cows in the same river. And I look, I look just on the opposite side of the bridge, and there's a, a broken-down car that someone decided to drive in, in, in the water, in the, in the river. So I'm like, so we got, uh, thankfully, downstream is, is a broken-down car, and then upstream is, I guess we're getting some nutrients from the cows, uh, some minerals, if you will. Um, and the beautiful thing about going on that mission trip was I went down there all gung-ho and like ready to change the world and everything, but Food for the Hungry Man, they just, they're so, uh, they've known this for a long time, one of their biggest things was identification. Like we come with our Western way of doing things and, and we didn't bring our own tools, you know, we, uh, we used the tools, we, we worked alongside the people there. We were there to build a sustainable community, to equip them to say, hey, we're no different than you. And so part of us uh, bathing in that uh, river wasn't really necessity, we came out dirtier than we did before, we just smelled like Old Spice body wash after we, <laughs> We came out of there. It was identification. We're coming down there. Hey, we're only here for a week, but where do you, where do you guys bathe? Is, is this is this all right? Cool. This is what we're doing. Well, water you do you drink? All right, we're gonna drink Aquafina. We're not gonna just kidding. <laughs> that was the one thing we could. I mean, if you drink that water, man, you're whew, if you've been on overseas and drink some water that was not filtered. Anyways, I digress. But but here's the deal. This is this is the scene we have. Imagine this. Okay, imagine this. There is a, a, a mob of people. Uh, on the shores of the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is baptizing people. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And then all of a sudden, the king everybody's waiting for shows up. And, and, and as I have tried to put myself in this situation and imagine the scene, I imagine everyone's just silent, right? You can probably hear a pin drop. And I imagine John comes out of the water, dripping wet, and everyone kind of circles around. Say, man, what, this, is, this is who we've been waiting for. What's, what's he going to do? And the beautiful thing that we see here is that what this king does is he looks at John the Baptist and he looks at this nasty river that physically was just full of bacteria. I mean, thousands of people being in the bay. I mean, if you've been in a river before, a bunch of people, it gets all dirty, the dirt gets, it's, 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 it's just physically, I mean, it's just bacteria infested. But also symbolically, what, what were they doing in that baptism? They were symbolically washing their sins away, right? And so Jesus says, hey, John, yeah, yeah, I'm the king. I'm, I'm coming from Nazareth. You see that nasty, filthy, 
a sin-soaked river, that's where I want to go. Let's go there. And he leads John the Baptist into that river and takes the plunge. And I think uh, the reason that's important is because I think a lot of us, if we were in that uh, crowd 2,000 years ago, the way we often view God is that we would think that this king would come and he would, he would stand on the shoreline with a megaphone, right? And say, hey, clean yourself up, guys. Hey, hey, John, you see that guy over there? Yeah, can you dunk him a couple more times? Yeah, he, 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 needs, he, needs, he needs like a double cleansing, if you, if you catch my drift. Yeah, you stay under the water a little bit longer. Hey, don't touch me. You're nasty. No, you're a sinner. Get away from me. I'm the coming king. I can't, I can't get close to you. I'm the righteous one. I'm the spotless lamb. I can't, I can't get in that river with you. No, 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 no. That's not what our Savior does. He stands shoulder to shoulder, side by side with filthy sinners, letting their sin-soaked and bacteria-infested water run completely and entirely over his spotless body, soaking him through and through. See, our Savior, our King, doesn't keep his distance from his people. I think a lot of times, some of us here, we think uh, our king keeps his distance because of our filthiness, when actually it's in spite of our filthiness that he runs right to us and takes the plunge in our sin-soaked river. Amen. The righteous one, he identifies himself with the unrighteous so that you and me, the unrighteous, can be identified as righteous, clean, cleansed, holy, justified, sanctified made new. That's what our Savior does. It's because of our filthiness that he takes the plunge in that river, in the Jordan. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the work that Christ came to do, right? This is symbolic, him letting that water soak him through and through. For our sake, Jesus, or for our sake, God made him to be sin who, know, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. And in Matthew 3, this is uh, the baptism account for Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus means there when he says that word fulfill all righteousness, he's, he's, he's saying uh, uh, this prophecy in Isaiah 53, 11 through 12, this is being fulfilled in this moment. This is the work I've come to do. Look at Isaiah 53, 11 through 12. Out of his anguish of his soul, he, sh he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and listen, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressor, transgressors. Um, man, this king, he identifies with us. He took on our nature. He took on our, our baptism. He took on our iniquities. He doesn't keep his distance. He bears our iniquities, and we get to bear his righteousness. So he identifies with us. And then secondly, we see that uh, his baptism was an inauguration of uh, his official entry into his public ministry, the inauguration of the work he came to do. So verses 10 through 11. 
And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so the crowd would have been uh, shocked enough that this coming king who they've been waiting for, they've been preparing for, went into that nasty river and was fully submerged. They would have been doubly shocked when he came up out of the water and we discovered that Jesus' family decided to show up to his baptism, his inauguration. What were the details we get here that Mark provides is literally that the, at Christ coming up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. See, that, that imagery there, something that is torn can't be closed back. Again, it's, it, there's a finality there to the tearing, and obviously it's symbolic because later in Mark's gospel, we discover that at the death and resurrection of Christ that the veil was torn in the temple. And what we see here is that the barriers are torn down and torn open between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And, and I love this, what one uh, a New Testament scholar said, God now is in our midst and on the loose. Mm, I love that. Barriers broken, chains broken, that veil torn into. I love that. Symbolizing the work that he came to do, a work of reconciliation, bringing us back to God. And just as much as, as that veil being torn, it's us uh, being able now to, to come to God. It's, it's just as much God coming down to us, right? Uh, God being in our midst, that veil being torn so that now God can dwell with us. And that's what we see with the Spirit's presence. That's the next thing we see here is the Spirit descending on Christ like a dove, and in the Greek too, that could, that could be rendered spirit descending into him. That, uh, uh, that would, and that is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. Uh, it's a beautiful part about reading the Gospels as you see how much of these Old Testament prophecies, uh, uh, there's a whole lot of them that are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Isaiah 11, one through two. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So at the baptism, uh, this God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, uh, comes and, and rests on Christ. And in John's gospel says, and remains on Jesus, that, that Christ had a ministry of, listen, total and full dependence upon the Spirit of God, that in his humanity, he modeled for us, in a way, what it looks like to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, being in tune with the Spirit, that that Spirit didn't descend and then depart, Spirit doesn't kind of come and go in our lives, maybe in, in, in power, but that Spirit came and descended and remained on Jesus, and rested on him. And the imagery we also have here is that it was this same spirit that came and rested on uh, the Son of God. It was the same spirit in Genesis 1 that hovered over the waters, rested over the waters at creation. And what this signifies is that there's a new creation taking place. That the work that Christ has come to do is a new work, a new creation, transforming humanity, rewriting their story. Something new is happening here. 
And uh, lastly, what we see here is the, the father's affection for his son. When God, uh, the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends on him like a, a, a dove and a voice rages, thunders from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant. Again, Isaiah, we're back in Isaiah, baby. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Watch this. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then also we see in Psalm 2 the fulfillment of this. Uh, Psalm 2 is an, an enthronement psalm. It celebrates the inauguration of a king who would come and rule over God's people. And Psalm 2, 7 says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so what we learn here about Christ is that uh, he is a king who comes from Nazareth, who identifies with sinners and also beloved son of God. That he is the, uh, the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, the divine Davidic king sent to rule Israel and free them from their oppression and bondage to sin and to the devil. He's unlike any king, unlike any person to walk the face of the earth. And what we see here, kind of implicit in this text, is this doctrine of the, of the Trinity. If, if you're here today and this is your first time in a church, you say, man, what's going on? There's, there's lots of characters. There's three primarily at work in this baptism. Well, we, uh, as Christians, we, we believe this. It's, it's all throughout Scripture here that, that there's one God that exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of who is fully God. But there's one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of who is fully God. And the beautiful, the beautiful truth to this, to the ultimate reality of the universe being a, 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 a God who exists in three persons, is that God can be a God of love now without creation. That for all of eternity, God, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, calls, uh, calls it a divine dance. And I stole that from Tim Keller now. So Tim Keller stole it from C.S. Lewis, so I'm stealing it from both of them. Anyways, um, a divine dance where each person of the, of, of the Godhead exists to, to serve, to love, and glorify the other. It's a beautiful picture uh, of what we were created to. We're made in the image of a triune God, a God who eternally exists in community, in relationships. That's why, uh, and we've been invited into that. And so some worldviews say that God is one. For all of eternity, God is one, and that it's polytheistic and heretical to say that God is one in three persons. Well, here's the deal. If God has been uh, eternally existent as one for all of eternity, how could he be a God of love if he has nobody to love? And so therefore, if that is true, that God is only one, and he's unipersonal, then he creates humanity because he's needy and he needs people to love. Therefore, this God is contingent and dependent on us in order to be a God of love. But if he's a Trinitarian God, and it is true that he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity, who have been in this divine dance loving one another, then he exists as love. He exists as a God of love, and he invites us into that dance. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we see that dance played out here at Christ's baptism, right? The family shows up. The Spirit's there. The Father's affection is there for, for him. And, but there's a transition that takes place here in this narrative, a quick transition. And so uh, a while back, my, I was at my brother's in a ceremony, if you will, to mark his work, his, his, his official entry into uh, the work of being a DC police officer. 
And um, the family was there hovering over him. My father was a DC cop. I'm saying, well, you're my beloved son with you. I'm well pleased. Don't know if he said that, but uh, <laughs> my dad did say it was hilarious. I don't know if he wants me saying this. I don't know if I should say it. Uh, I'll say it. Jeff said it. I'd say it. So chief of police is there, and we're, we're in this uh, you know, auditorium. And chief of police, my dad used to work with the chief of police and, and all that stuff. And they, they worked with my dad was on uh, a police officer for about 30 years. And she, you know, in her like little her spiel, her speech, calls out my dad and say, hey, you know, we're in the presence of, you know, blah, 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 you know, Lieutenant Mudrizo has worked here for the, you know, all that, you know, singing his praises. And uh, my dad, after she's done, said something to the effect of, yeah, I thought it was a staff meeting. So I'm like, that's why I'm here. I was like, <laughs> the middle of the ceremony. I was like, ah, oh, it's awesome. Anyways, um, so we're there, and um, at that ceremony, our whole family found out where my brother was going. Uh, what district? There's a bunch of districts in D.C. And uh, he got, he got uh, selected to go to, to the 6th district of D.C., which if you, if you, I didn't know until we found out, but it's, it's one of the most dangerous places in the nation. Um, it's no joke. And so ceremony was awesome. We celebrated uh, his entry into uh, ministry. But then uh, literally a couple days later, he's in the trenches He's in the battle, and he's actually finally back on the streets. He had a three-month hiatus where he got in a street brawl and dislocated his shoulder uh, because, of, because of the area he's in. Um, and so in the same way, there's a transition in this gospel where there's this inauguration. Christ enters into his public ministry. The spirits, their spirit remains on him. The Father is pleased. And then, and then this happens. Uh, this is a little bit before I move on to what John Piper says. When, jo- when Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side. It was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. And that leads us to our next point. Uh, in, this, in this passage, we see the temptation or the battle that this king enters on our behalf a battle that he had to enter to rewrite the story of human history, to rewrite our stories. Mark 1, 12 through 13, the same spirit that descended upon Christ like a dove immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So the ceremony, the celebration is over. Christ has officially entered into his ministry, and immediately that same spirit drives him out. That's the same verb used for when Jesus drives out demons from people. Sends him. So this is the work you've been sent to do. You've been sent to wage war against the gates of hell. So he drives him out into the wilderness. And this is just fascinating to me, is that the the exact moment that Christ begins his official public ministry is that Satan begins to beat down his door. And why is that? Because the arrival of the Son of God was a direct onslaught of Satan's kingdom. The inauguration of Christ meant the beginning of the enemy's downfall, that the shackles that the Prince of Darkness had tightly bound over humanity were soon to be shattered, and clearly this enemy was not going down without a fight. And so for some of us here, when we face opposition, we cry and say, God, why are you doing this? And in a way, if we're not facing opposition, we might need to be concerned. Because, because this enemy is not going down without a fight. There's, there's a, the crisis won the war, but there's battles still raging. 
And so for a lot of us here, if we're not facing opposition, if we're not facing persecution, we need to be asking, well, hey, maybe, just maybe, God isn't after my comfort. Maybe the enemy is after my comfort. See, the, the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus, we learn in the other Gospels. Satan wanted Jesus to be comfortable and cozy. Turn that stone to bread. Hey, throw down, throw yourself off the mountain let the, the angels catch you. Hey, bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything you could ever want. He want in, a, in a way, it was comfort, right? And Christ fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness in the presence of wild animals. There's danger there. This, this gospel was written uh, during the Nero persecution where, when Christians were being literally fed to wild animals. And so this key detail here is, is symbolic and is reminding those Christians, hey, look what your Savior has done on your behalf. Your Savior has gone before you. He's paved the way. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of your salvation. So why the temptation of the king? Isn't he the divine son of God? How could he be tempted with evil? We often overlook this, and we talked about this uh, in our last sermon series entitled Man of Sorrows, but Christ took on our humanity by taking on our flesh and our humanity. He not only identifies with us in that, but he comes to fight the battles that are waging war on us, for us. He enters into the trenches the battle that we face against sin and temptation and the evil one. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. This is just a beautiful picture of what Christ came to do at his incarnation. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. You guys realize that, right? You know what it's like to be thirsty? You know what it's like to be hungry? Christ experienced that. To experience abandonment, to have the enemy plague you nonstop with temptation to evil, to, to, to distrust God. The enemy plague you to, to do the exact opposite of what God has sent us to do. He's experienced the pull of temptation. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to deliver us who were subject to slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had, listen, he had to be made like us. He had to be human. He had to do what we failed time and time to do because he had to be our representative. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Anyone here tempted? Anyone here beaten up by the enemy, by sin, by temptation, by wickedness? Christ knows. He knows. He partook of the same things and he intercedes on our behalf so that when we are in that moment of temptation listen we don't have to to buck up and and say i'm an overcomer and i got this i'm gonna rock this no we call out to the overcomer we call out to the one who's gone before us who's tempted in the wilderness and listen and didn't fail the test and didn't fail the test that's who we invite into that moment of temptation we say, we say, Jesus, man, you know the pull that I'm feeling right now. You know. I can't hide this from you. You know I want to. Would you take that from me? And would you give me yourself? Would you be my victory? Instead of me always trying 
to get the glory. And so it's not just that he identifies with the unrighteous. It's not just that he puts on our jersey and offers us support. He says, you know, here's, here's some tips on how to live a better life. That's not our hope, church. Our hope is that Jesus Christ entered into the trenches. He fought our battle on our behalf against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and did the one thing that, listen, we were entirely powerless to do, and that is overcome our enemies and secure our victory. That Christ's victory in that uh, uh, wilderness temptation is our victory because he came to represent us. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His obedience is now our obedience. His victory is our victory. And so I'll wrap up with this. The story of human history, this is the story of human history, is humanity failing time and time and time again in the wilderness temptation. That's it, man. Israel, Christ is there for 40 days. For 40 years, Israel, the people of God were in the wilderness and they failed that test. They grumbled, they moaned, they, they lacked trust of God. Moses goes up to the mountain and comes back and those people are worshiping a golden calf. That's our story. And it goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. That our narrative, our story is one of bondage and slavery to sin. That the first man comes on the scene, Adam, and listen, he's in paradise. He's in paradise, surrounded by anything and everything he could ever want. He's not in the presence of, presence of wild animals. He's in the presence of animals that he has dominion over. And, and the same enemy that tempted Christ is the same enemy that tempted the first man, Adam, our representative, lied to him, whispered in his ear and said, hey, did God really say? Can you really trust him? Why don't you do your own thing? Why don't you do what you want? Why do you need to listen to God? And listen, the story of human history was forever changed, forever rewritten at that moment. Plagued. Enemy having a field day. Keeping people in slavery and bondage, sin and death, wreaking havoc across a once perfect and good creation. But thanks be to God that he sent a second Adam, a truer and better Adam, who goes into the wilderness, not in paradise, surrounded by lush fruit and, and, and milk and honey and all that stuff. He's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, and he's plagued by the same enemy, whispering the same lies in his ear. And unlike the first Adam, the second Adam doesn't fail, doesn't fall for it. And he secures our victory so that his obedience, his overcoming of the enemy is our overcoming of the enemy. And this Jesus, the second Adam, came to do what the first Adam did. He comes to undo that and he comes to rewrite our stories. A story of us once being in lifelong bondage and slavery to the enemy. We just read that in Hebrews, Hebrews 2. And this Jesus comes to set the captive free. To, to the shackles that were on us, he now puts on our enemy over, over Satan, over sin, over death. That's what this second Adam came to do. And listen, I was just, I was just reflecting on this last night, uh, thinking through this, this, last, uh, this idea of, of a story being rewritten. And I was reflecting on my story and just reflecting on the grace that I've been shown of Jesus coming on the scene of human history and completely changing the entire course of human history. But listen, not just human history, but my story, your story, 
that this Jesus of Nazareth, of Galilee, came and not just entered the, the, the sin-soaked uh, uh, Jordan River, but he's entered this sinner's heart. And he's bearing my sins, my transgressions, and I get his righteousness, and I get uh, the promise of, of his victory, that he sings a song of victory over me. He's, he's rewritten my story. Anyone here at the redeemed of God, has this Jesus rewritten your story? Has the trajectory of your journey with Jesus, your, uh, could, you, could you look at your life and look back and say, but for the grace of God, if, I had, if Jesus did not come and change everything in my life, oh my goodness, where would I be but for the grace of God, this Jesus? Has he rewritten your story, church? Has he? Would you thank him for that today? Would you reflect on where you would be without knowing this, this Jesus who doesn't keep his distance because of our sin, but it's because of our sin that he gets all up in your space and begins rewriting your story. And if you're here today and you have never experienced this, this new life, this new story, this new journey that Christ is calling you to, inviting you to, would you say, just man, just a simple prayer of faith. It's not a formula. It's from a sincere heart where if you, if you want this Jesus and if you want your story to be rewritten, would you, would you literally uh, just say, Lord, here's the pen and here's the paper. Here's the journal of my life, Jesus. I'm tired of, of trying to write a story where I fail time and time again. Would you begin writing a new story on the pages of my life? Would you pray that prayer this morning and just watch just watch and see the narrative that he writes on your life. That's what this Jesus comes to do. See, this, this king comes, church, and he changes everything. He changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy for new life, man. Where we be without you, Jesus? We say thank you. You've rewritten our stories. You've, you've changed our lives forever. Thank you. Thank you. And Spirit, we just pray that you would come. And you, would, you, would you help us never to lose sight of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done on our behalf? We thank you for your word and how it shows and teaches us that you're a king who, who identifies with the transgressors, identifies with the unrighteous, as shoulder to shoulder in our stinky, filthy river to make us clean, white as snow. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. All praise, all honor, honor and glory belong to you and you alone. You are mighty to save. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.